Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And you may remember our interview with artist and author Jason Porath from back in 2016 when he came by to talk about his book, Rejected Princesses. He has another book. It's called Tough Mothers, and it's out now. And he was traveling around promoting it and was able to stop in our Atlanta studio. Yeah, and we talked for a while because Jason is full of fun stories. So instead of giving this a lengthy intro, which he covers most of the ground we would cover in an intro anyway, let's just hop right into it. Hi, Jason Porath. Hi. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad I'm here. It's bright and early. We're all a little sleepy still. Yeah, we're a little punch drunk, <laughs> so apologies already, but it's going to be fun. Uh, yeah. So we had you on before when you were promoting your first book. Mm-hmm. Your second book, Tough Mothers, is out. Yes. What's been happening since last time we spoke? I've worked a lot. <laughs> I know. I've been lucky enough to kind of connect with you in various cities as we've both been yeah, traveling. popping up here and there. But it is always kind of like a, I have a 42-minute window between going <laughs> to this thing and this thing. Do you want to grab a drink slash meal? Yeah, even right now, I, I have like an hour to kill, and then I have to drive off to New Orleans where I'm going to the uh, annual librarian association or uh, American librarian association at an <laughs> annual conference. So I get, I'm hoping I just get to party with librarians. That's That's my jam. I know other people who are going to that who are also cool, and so I think you'll have a great time. Yeah. All right. Please. let I, I actually know no one there, so please send me info on that. Oh, having worked in the library sciences for more than a decade, I can tell you there's some— You'll, you will find fun parties. I've never met a terrible librarian. I'm sure they exist, uh, but do they go to conferences? I don't know. No. I'm, I'm, I'm going to find out. I mean, to be fair, there are terrible people in every profession <laughs> and true. delightful people in every profession. That's true. Probably the terrible people don't want to go be social at a conference. Yeah, I've I've sort of came with the idea that uh, if I go to a place and everybody seems really cool and there's a whole lot of them, there's got to be one terrible person. If I can't figure out who it is, it's probably me. <laughs> I just assume it's always me. It's probably And that's me. like the safest, <laughs> easiest. I get to go in a little defensive, a little. Yeah. It works out perfect. Yeah. Uh, what else has been going on other than just never stopping? God. Uh, so I, I've continued doing uh, these sort of online web entries. But um, unlike the books, which are sort of, um, for those of you who don't know, I, I, this is a series about uh, awesome ladies of history that uh, almost nobody's ever heard of. I do occasional mythological or, or folklore, but it's primarily history. Uh, I do an illustration and then a write-up. The books are just here's one picture that's like a a poster of a movie that's never been made and likely never will be made uh, sort of in in quasi-animated princess style and then a write-up. For online, I've been doing this sort of – like f- like an illuminated manuscript with tons of illustrations, like a, an online webcomic kind of deal, uh, which 10x, 20x my workload, which was a real bad call on my part. I tell you that <laughs> uh, they're popular, I, I but man, they're a lot of work. Yeah, I feel like last time we talked, you were trying to figure out ways that you could streamline your process because you were already overloaded, and instead you kind of clunked it up in a beautiful way. Yeah, it looks great, but man, I am a masochist. Uh, so there's there's at least a lot out there, and it's it's very effective, and I'll eventually figure out how to how to compile it together in a book and and not have it cost a bajillion dollars. But uh, yeah, that's still TBD. 
And at some point, you'll figure out how to manage your life so you could sleep. Uh, theoretically, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah <laughs> or I'll just pass out in the middle of it. You know? <laughs> so uh, Tough Mothers is out, and I know Tracy and I have both prepped some uh, some ones that we think might be fun to talk about. I also talked to you and got which ones were your favorites. Uh, so do you want to jump right in and talk about some Tough Mothers? All right, let's do it. All right. Yeah, so um, if if folks have not read this book, Holly and I actually blurbed this book. It's we true. we had our praise. Our praise is is in the book for this one. So that was exciting and uh, something I was genuinely excited about doing because I love your work. Oh, thank you. I love your work. The first of these awesome mothers that we wanted to talk about today was Ada Blackjack, whose story is fascinating. So tell us about her. So Ada Blackjack uh, lived uh, early 1900s. She was an Inuit woman, uh, and she was not one of these folk who, like, lived with the tribes and whatever. She lived in a city. She wasn't, like, uh, well-educated. She didn't really have a, a whole lot going for her. In, fa- uh, in fact, she had uh, married a dude who uh, was a really kind of terrible off uh, husband uh, named Jack Blackjack. I know that's a huge surprise that a guy named Jack Blackjack uh, – wouldn't turn out to be father of the year, but yeah, alcoholic left her with a, a kid. And so uh, she's like a 19, 20, 20, like early 20s, uh, doesn't have a lot of prospects, has to, her kid has tuberculosis and she has to put him up in a uh, an orphanage. So things are not really going Ada's way at this point. Uh Simultaneous to this, there is a movement by a whole bunch of uh, very confident white guys to go claim a godforsaken rock about 200 miles north of Siberia for England. It should be noted at this point that um, a bunch of these guys who are out on this scientific expedition, scare quotes, um, had shipwrecked there years prior. This place called Wrangell, Wrangell Island. Uh, and uh, had narrowly escaped from that. And they're like, you know what's a great idea? Let's go back and claim it for England, and that way it'll be like a vantage point for them to like mess with Russia or something. England didn't want this, by the way. England had had absolutely no interest in this island. Their, their literal plan was we're going to go there, we're going to squat there for a year, uh, and that's like plant a flag and we're going to get this island and it'll be great and England will love it. And they'll give us a uh, free license to uh, uh, become reindeer tycoons. Like they were going to to just have a reindeer farm. <laughs> like this was their legit plan. I'm not making this up. It was not a good plan. It's a bizarre thought process from the beginning. Like we shipwrecked on this island and it was awful. What if we went back and made it ours now? Yeah. So there were there were four of them that were being financed by this guy with an unpronounceable uh, Nordic name, Wilhelmur Stephenson. I, I apologize. I just I can't pronounce that name. It's it's a lot. Uh, so Stephenson, let's go with Stephenson. Uh, he has th- these four like guys, two of whom were like fresh out of college. They were like nineteen and twenty. Uh, the other two had had a little bit of, of experience with him, and one of them, uh, it's it's heavily hinted, had like crazy PTSD from being shipwrecked on Wrangell Island before, and he was going back to like settle things within himself. So oh, already, so many problems. <laughs> there's so many problems. I'm still back on picturing England going. Can I return this gift for store credit? <laughs> <laughs> well, England didn't know they were doing it. They like they just they they got a couple like a couple of the people who were going with them. The, the, part of the four were uh, uh, Canadian citizens, and thus like part of the Commonwealth. And like they were going to trying to the whole thing was just. 
it was it was a bit of a mess. Moreover, it was a there was a lot of question over like, is this Russian property? Is this like U.S. Alaskan property? Like, who who owns what? And they were basically like, hey, let's go cause an international incident. <laughs> so, I got time. <laughs> moreover, to as if this wasn't a, as bad an idea as it already sounds, uh, the uh, the expedition. Um, uh, Stephenson had tricked a bunch of the, the people who were on the expedition saying, oh, yeah, we got plenty of funding. We have plenty of people behind it. They, uh, I just talked to the queen. She's great about it. Uh, so he'd already lied to a bunch of them. Uh, but he was also like, hey, let's just go with six months of supplies for a year. And we'll just hunt while we're there because the Arctic is super friendly. That was his brand. It's like, oh, yeah, the Arctic, totally fine, Right. And we'll just get a whole bunch of Inuit people, we'll hire them, and then they'll basically carry the day. So that was their plan. And they went up to Alaska, and they go on this this, uh, hiring expedition, and nobody wants to get with these guys. (laughs) Nobody. (laughs) Except for Ada Blackjack. Ada having almost no prospects whatsoever, and, like, her friends are like, I don't know about these guys. Uh, she's like, well, I don't – I need I need to get medicine. My, my son's got tuberculosis, and he's young, and, like, I need to be helping that out. And I, I, got, I got nothing else I can do. And so she signs up with them, and even they're like, oh, you're not a great fit. We're looking for, like, like a traditional Inuit person like that. <sighs> racist white people uh you know attitudes they like they wanted someone who could like make a skin boat and like could hunt and could sew and whatever and she's like well I can sew a little bit and they're like ah, fine okay we'll we'll get more inuit folk along the way they did not get more inuit folk along the way uh so they end up tr- uh tricking a boat captain to bring them out to Wrangell Island refusing to tell them tell this captain where they're going until they get there or why they're going they just keep paying him money until he just drops them off. And he's like, what are these crazy people doing? And then as he's, uh, like, going off, they don't even wait to plant the flag. So, like, the uh, the guy, as he's, he's uh, boating off, like, looks at them uh, through the uh, the periscope and, and real, or the uh, viewing glass. And he's like, oh, that's what, oh, those stupid idiots. But he's still getting out of there because he knows winter's about to come and there's, like, like a, a one-month window max where the ice is is at that point with the technology in the boats where the boats could actually get through. Uh, so guy gets out and spreads word that – and like international incidents starts unfolding in the outside world while these guys are on this island. And so for – like this is this is they, they get there and it immediately starts getting dark and like this is so far north that there's literally like 61 straight days of consecutive darkness like it's just it's just a bad idea Ada Blackjack having had n- never really left home never really been far away starts having severe mental health issues and the idiot scientists None of them have had any, like, medical training or psychological training whatsoever. And so they're like, oh, she's gone crazy. Let's mistreat her horribly. Yeah. No, the the stuff they do is is just infuriating. Uh, And they, they, like, lock her up outside and, like, insult her. I mean, they try for a little bit to, uh, uh, like, help calm her down at the beginning. But then they're just like, no, this isn't worth it. And, like, do all sorts of really just gnarly stuff. 
Uh, eventually, they calm down and they get into sort of a, a regular routine where they're hunting or whatever. But and they make it for to about a year with like minor injuries and whatever. Uh, and they have not done much science while the entire time they're up there. Uh, and then they hit the one year mark and they're like, "All right, great, the boat's coming back. We'll be fine." The boat does not come back. <laughs> Uh, Stephenson had not been able to really put together his his uh, ducks in a row, and so it didn't have a boat coming. So he was like, nah, in the press, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. <laughs> like, the Arctic is friendly, remember? That's my brand. And so they go another year, and things go real bad. One of them, uh, the the guy who had, who had been there before who was really working out PTSD, he um, – basically uh, gets scurvy and doesn't tell anyone and just starts acting like an a-hole. Like, <laughs> like, hey, he'd had scurvy before. You think you'd know, like, to tell someone. But he's like, no, I'm a man. I can deal with it. Oh, dear. Uh, it's so infuriating just reading all of this stuff. Uh, so basically, at a certain point, like mid-January, he can no longer walk. Ada is taking care of him. She has, at this point, like taught herself to trap, taught herself to uh, hunt, etc. And uh, the other guys are like, okay, well, we need to get out of here. We won't last until like the, the second year that the boat can get through at that, that one little juncture. So they're like, okay, we're going to just get in the dog-pulled sleds and we are going to sled to Alaska from this island because everything is ice and we're just going to walk to Alaska, essentially. Uh, and if that doesn't work, we're going to go to Siberia and then just find help. They're never found again. Uh, they just disappear and things go bad. So it's just her and this guy who is like the king of buttheads and has scurvy and she's caring for him. And she keeps this dude alive for months and months and months. Meanwhile, he is he is – insulting her in the worst ways. Uh, she'd had some kids, like, who had uh, died in infancy and, like, miscarriages and stuff, and he says things like, oh, if this is the standard of care that you're providing me, no wonder your kids died, which is possibly the worst thing you could pos- you could say to another human being. It's pretty bad. Yeah. I can't think of anything. I mean, not that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about, like, terrible things to say to people. <laughs> Where your threshold might be. <laughs> right. But uh, I, I, I struggle to think of anything worse that you, you could say to someone. Um, but she keeps them alive. She, like, starts jury rigging up uh, different things for, uh, like, uh, shooting uh, game and stuff because she's smaller than them. So, like, she needs to have, like, a gun rest and that sort of thing. She builds out an entire platform to look out for polar bears, which she's terrified of due to, like, her her uh, uh, native upbringing. Like, uh, the Nanook uh, was a uh, a deity that she was just terrified as, as a polar bear deity that was, was going to eat her. So... All sorts of terrible things. She keeps him alive for months and months and months. He finally uh, succumbs, and she spends months alone with uh, just her and the ship's cat, whose name is Vic. Uh, they called him Snoops because he was a Snoopy cat. Um, and eventually at the two-year mark, the uh, the boat comes back, and she's the only one alive. And there's this guy named— Is, is, is Snoops also alive? Snoops is also alive. Okay, Snoops good. makes it. Uh, there's, there's photos of her on the boat with Snoops. Uh, Snoops makes it all the way. <laughs> uh, Snoops has a long and happy life. Uh, so, yeah, she she survives. Uh, nobody else does. Uh, she's found by this expedition two years after they'd set uh, set off. And uh, she's found by this guy, Harold Noyce. Uh, yeah, it's N-O-I-C-E, Noyce. Perfect. 
but he was not noise. That, so it just <laughs> it gets worse. This is the, this is the thing. Like just when you think, okay, it's 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 gonna it's, she's in the clear, everything's cool, she's getting paid for it. No, no, it doesn't get better. <laughs> Um, so she gets to, to civilization and she sells a bunch, she gets her, her money. She's, uh, for, for the expedition. She's got a bunch of furs from all the, the stuff that she's killed that she sells. Noise, like, actually is like, oh, I'll just take them off your hands and I'll pay you. And he pays her like 15% when she w- would have gotten otherwise because he's awful. Uh, and he, she just hands over a bunch of the, uh, the journals that the men had been keeping, including the, the guy who, uh, survived the longest, whom she'd been looking after. Uh, and so then she's just like, I don't want to deal with any of you reporters. All of you people are crazy. I'm going to go look after my son because that's the only reason I did any of this and just nopes right out of there. Uh, just heads off to the tuberculosis ward and takes all of her money and is just like, I'm getting treatment for my son. I'm getting reunited with my son. Yay. And is out of the public eye. What then immediately happens is that Noyce takes this journal, which he's supposed to hand over to Stephenson, the guy who'd, who'd financed the whole thing, and Noyce is like, wait, there's money here. There's life rights. There's movies and stuff to be made. But I need to spice it up. It isn't good enough. So he starts systematically erasing parts of it to make it look like Ada Blackjack was a prostitute and that <sighs> the man had brought her along and she was a woman of ill repute. <sighs> Sorry, I need to take a moment here just because I'm so exasperated how awful everyone is in this story. Ada's great, but man, the, man, the every man in this story. The moral of the story is that in Ada's life, the only thing she could trust was a cat. Yeah, cat and uh, and her son. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he uh, starts, like, making noises about, like, oh, yeah, well, she was fat and healthy when I, I found her and, like, had eaten all of uh, the, the, the rations and these men would have survived without her. Just I- increasing, like, the, the terribleness of the story uh, until word gets to her and she she gets on a train and goes, uh, I forget if it's, like, from the Pacific Northwest, I think she was in Seattle at the time, goes all the way down to the L.A. Times, walks into the L.A. Times, gives an interview that basically burns the guy's story to the ground. Uh, she had befriended all of the um, uh, the men's families, all of uh, the the other people who on the uh, expedition, and they all loved her. They basically uh, adopted her as family, uh, and they all vouched for her. And she basically just destroyed this guy's career, and then noped off to Alaska and lived to to her, her mid eighties. Uh, her son lived he, – he ended up getting like meningitis. He was blind in one eye, tuberculosis, still lived to his mid-40s or 50s. She had another kid who didn't know any of this. Like all of this was a complete mystery to, to him and, and just he kind of was this rebellious kid. who's was just like, oh, mom is so lame. I don't like her. Meh. And then like only later in life did he realize – and now he's still alive – uh, how much she'd gone through uh, and then uh, agitated for her to get a special uh, recommendation from the uh, the state of Alaska, and she did. Uh, but uh, the location of her grave and everything is uh, anonymous because uh, she was so sick of people coming by and interviewing her. She didn't want anything to do <laughs> with any press for the rest of her life. She's like, my ghost grants no interviews. Yeah. She's like, I'm done. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, her story is amazing, and she shows up in all sorts of uh, of newspapers and everything. Uh, you know, early 1900s. Uh, but she has not shown up in in any like other form of media. Le- the only thing that she's shown up in, and this 
really cheeses me off is that there's a if you if you search the name Ada Blackjack, there's a uh, clothing company. It's like a, expensive, like leather hand goods or something operating out of Barcelona that appears to be a, like this random lady who's just like, oh, I was so inspired by her story. I'm going to make a bunch of leather handbags in her name. Like, it's just this completely unrelated lady doing this and just taking her name. I'm like, really? Really? You going to do that? I I think she stopped a couple years ago, but all the stuff is still up. So you still get a bunch of Google hits for it, which is just not okay. Ada Blackjack's story is at turns exasperating and inspiring. Yeah. Coming up, we are going to talk about a Japanese woman who spearheaded an education movement. But first, we are going to pause for a quick sponsor break. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, someone who kind of spearheaded some cool education stuff and also had a lot of stress and tragedy in her life, uh, which is Stamatsu Oyama. Yeah, uh, she was the uh, first uh, Japanese woman to basically get a, a bachelor's degree, and she has this utterly fascinating story. So her story kind of starts at the, the very end of the age of the samurai. Um, so there's like this huge battle that I think most people can point to as like the, the end of the age of the samurai, sort of uh, the Meiji uh, restoration, which I'm sure you've, you've talked a, a lot about that sort of stuff. But it's the, the Battle of uh, Aizu Wakamatsu uh, is the, this um, kind of the Western-backed forces of Japan versus the traditionalist samurai. And she was on the losing side. She was on the, the samurai side. And um, – she was holed up in this Aizu, Aizu castle and doing what women did in those days, which was they were getting shelled by uh, uh, cannons uh, provided by uh, Western forces, I believe. And uh, she her her job was to uh, provide uh, ammunition for uh, the gunners up on the walls. And um, if a shell came in, she was supposed to take a, a wet blanket and smother it and prevent it from going off. That's actually how her sister-in-law, Tose, died. And so Tose, like, died and, like, a bunch of shrapnel went off and it actually left a scar on uh, Stematsu's neck. It should be noted uh, that her name was actually Sakiko Yamakawa uh, at this point. I'll, I'll get into why her name changes throughout this. But she goes through, like, many name changes. So Sakiko has lost her, her sister-in-law uh, as uh, lo- on the losing side of uh, this, this uh, battle of samurai, lost all, all the honor and everything. And uh, her family, who is like high up lords and whatever, are basically reduced to uh, – they're trying to look after all of these uh, people who, who, who were their vassals but uh, were on the losing side and don't have a lot of, of food to go around or whatever – and so the the forces who who won the, the, the faction in Japan were like, we need to westernize like now. We need to send a bunch of people abroad. Let's go uh, like send a bunch of people to learn in the West. Any volunteers? Crickets. Nobody <laughs> volunteers because nobody like almost nobody had, had left Japan at that point. Everybody was just like, oh, foreigner barbarians. Like it was it was just like poorly understood sort of outside. Uh, like nobody spoke. English to speak of, like there was very little understanding of the outside world. Uh, so the the powers that be just kept like enticing more as like we'll pay for them, we'll we'll give you a stipend, etc. And eventually, um, Sakiko's brother is like, no, I volunteer her, and she's like, wait, what? <laughs> she doesn't get a say in it. Uh, so she's sent uh, abroad along with uh, uh, four other girls. So it's it's you can find pictures of them. Uh, there's these these five girls. 
none of whom, like all 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 Japanese, like really young. Like she is, I think, seven or eight at the time. Um, the youngest was uh, like three or four, and the, the oldest was, were in their teens, like 13, 14. And the, they're all sent to to the United States uh, for education. And yeah, it's a really poorly thought out plan because they're like, okay, well, where are they going to go get educated? Who's, who's going to take care of them? How, how are we working this out? Whatever. But it's, it's literally they go from uh, like – Running around with swords in the age of the samurai, to they're there for seeing dudes in blackface. Like they're there, like six, seven years after the end of the Civil War, they get to see the remains of the the Great Chicago Fire. They're like tourists for like some surprising stuff, uh, and they end up in New England. And uh, two of the girls just immediately, the the two oldest are like, "I can't deal with this. I'm out," and go back to to Japan. Uh, and then the youngest three stay there for 10 years. And before she goes, uh, Sakiko has one last uh, sort of interaction with her mother where her mother renames her. Uh, and her mother uh, renames her Stematsu. And Stematsu is, is a really odd name. There's almost nobody in Japan ever named this. And it's it's uh, a weird linguistic uh, – like it has a ton of meaning if you, if you understand a bit of Japanese. It basically – it it indicates that she is waiting for her daughter to come back. Um, it's a really sorrowful name. It, the the character uh, the first it's two characters. There's a ste and matsu, and ste indicates like uh, discarding. Uh, leave, like it's, it's uh, when you you toss something in the trash. It's a steru. Um, whereas uh, matsu is a, a homophone for uh, the verb to wait. Uh, but it's also uh, the character of the, her defeated uh, lord, the, the Aizu uh, uh, lord that uh, was defeated in battle. So it's this really odd name that I've never seen before or since. Um, and it basically was saying that the, she was discarding but then going to wait for her daughter. It's a really sorrowful name. Um, so Stematsu uh, ends up in – New England, and she and the other girls can't speak, like, any English, are terrified of everybody around them, and basically huddle together and just refuse to talk to anybody else. And eventually they're like, well, this isn't working, and they separate them into different foster families. And she goes through the education system and gradually gets better and better at it. She's, like, valedictorian and stuff. Uh, But the education system at the time is very – I mean, this is the early, like the, the the late 1800s. Like, we don't even have all the the states in the United States yet. Like, she's there for like, you know, a, a bunch of celebrations where you can see like her with a bunch of flags that uh, don't have all the stars in them. So yeah, she's there for like the centennial. She the the education system has things in there like, uh, you know, rank all these uh, civilizations in order of barbarism, <laughs> and like Japan was on it. Like, like how do you Ah, but she she does amazingly well. She's very, very bright. Uh, she ends up go, uh, staying a little bit longer and uh, becoming uh, one of the, the first classes to graduate from Vassar. Uh, and she's high up uh, great grades and whatever. And then she goes back to Japan. However, Japan, the political winds have changed and they're just like, oh, I don't know about all this Westerner stuff anymore. And so they're like, well, it was nice. Uh, we're going to do our own thing. They're, they're a little bit more traditionalist at that point. And so there's no 
room for her or the other girls. The other girls, one of whom had, had just graduated high school, she was she was younger, and the other one didn't get a full-on bachelor's. I think she got a, a music degree or something. Um, it, was, it was like a, an associate's degree or something. Uh, so they all go back. Uh, the older one is like, I'm going to get married. It'll be fine. Uh, and Stamatsu is like, no, we need to change this. This isn't okay. Like, there's no room for us. But clearly, like, we've seen what what can be done if, if you get an education and, and girls don't get educated here. We need to, like, get girls' education going. But she had no political wherewithal to do so. She was, like, this bizarre alien in her own, like, country. She, I mean, she had kept practicing Japanese while she was uh, in the States with, with uh, the other two girls, but uh, her Japanese was stilted and weird uh, by the time she got back. So she was still an alien in her own country. And so she really needed some sort sort of political power in order to pull off what she wanted to do. And she found it in a husband. But the husband, get this, was one of the military commanders who was shelling the castle. <laughs> could have killed her sister-in-law. So she had been fetching ammunition to fire at him. And he had been ordering cannons to fire at her. And they got married. That's uh, clearly the romance tale as old as time. Isn't it, that how they usually it, start? <laughs> it was a weird match. Like, her her parents were like, no, we will not do this. Like, they, they just flat out refused him. Uh, but he kept at it. Uh, he had spent some time abroad, too, so he also kind of felt like an alien in his own country. And he was super high up in the military. Uh, and he's just, he, he was, he had the attitude of, like, I want a wife who can kind of keep keep step with me. I want a wife who can, who's like impressive. I don't want like a, a trophy wife. I want a wife who can like talk and like be at these dignitary functions and can talk to uh, people in, in other countries and really represent very well. And there's no, like literally Stematsu is the most educated Japanese woman in the world at this point, possibly in, in history. I mean, it depends on how you define education, but in, in terms of like traditional like college education and, like, like liberal arts education, she knew more than any woman alive, which is crazy. Um, so they do end up getting married, and it's it's a, a happy enough marriage. They're never really in love. Like, she never really loves him. Um, but she changes her name yet again. Like, she had – so she had been born Sakiko Yamakawa, then had changed her name to Stematsu, um, her, her mom had. Uh, the uh, English uh, speakers couldn't quite, like – pronounce her name correctly when they, they looked at it. They're like, Sutematsu. And they're like, so she started spelling it S-T-E-M-A-T-Z so people would understand it. So that's that's three name changes. And she gets married so that her, her last name, her surname, uh, goes from Yamakawa to Oyama. So that's four name changes. Um, so now she's Stematsu Oyama. And uh, Oyama literally means great mountain. So it, it kind of fits because she kind of devoted herself to the, the great mountain, Fuji, like the, the symbol of Japan. She's going to like make a big change in Japan, and she she does. Like, she manages to use her political ends to become a, a funder for these girls' colleges. They, they, they start one that's just for sort of nobles called the PRS's school, and the, the youngest of the three that had gone over, uh, a girl named Umetsuda, she, she's by this point gotten an education. She comes back and starts running this school, and Stematsu, like, sort of has to keep in the background. She's, like, the the um, patron. She's the, the funder. She's the one who's pulling the strings in the background. And uh, 
she has a really tough life because she's still like this outsider and there's vicious gossip going on around her. One of the the great uh, pieces of uh, Japanese literature uh, is basically a, a whisper gossip piece slamming her. Her uh, stepdaughter had died of a Spanish flu and they basically said it was Stematsu's fault. And so there's this this uh, novel uh, – I forget the name. Of it. it translates as a type of bird uh, is the name of it. But it's um, – it basically is her in, in, in everything but name and it blames her as like this evil stepmom who is like corrupting her children and killing them and whatever. Uh, and she has to suffer all of this and she – does it stoically in silence and like uses all of her her influence and she she writes letters back during this time saying every year my husband gets fatter and I thinner. She really was giving everything of herself to to make this happen, but it ended up working. They they started a school that uh, was the first uh, college for Japanese girls college as uh, named after Umetsuda uh, in time as a, a Suda college, but um. Stematsu was was basically the one funding it and made sure that it happened. Um, there were edicts that um, each prefecture had to open up uh, uh, girls' schools. And uh, the way Stematsu died actually was uh, the Spanish flu epidemic, which is a, a weird touch base. It's like this recurring character throughout all of human history. Like I, it shows up like five times in this book alone. The woman I just talked about, Ada Blackjack, her her village had been ravaged by Spanish flu and that's why she'd had to like uh, move out to the big city. Um, like Spanish flu, it screwed everyone. Uh, so Spanish flu epidemic hits Japan and uh, uh, Ume, who had been uh, running the school, had to step down and they didn't have a headmaster. And so Stematsu basically stepped in and ran things for about two weeks looking for a headmaster so that the school wouldn't close. And uh, she found a headmaster and literally the day after she found someone to t- take over for her, she woke up with uh, a scratchy throat and died like two weeks later. Um, so everybody remembers like Umetsuda. Like she's the the face of, of education. But there was this woman who, who suffered tremendously in the background who was there for just an, an incredible transformation of of human culture really. Uh, who saw just an amazing amount of stuff that her name isn't really put up nearly on the same pedestal. And she's just a fascinating character. Yeah, there's probably no real way to measure her actual impact on the globe. Yeah. Like she just is this background character who shows up everywhere and just she was really just trying to live a life and find a place for herself. And she just had to carve it out of granite. Coming up, uh, Jason is going to talk about a mother of a bit of a different sort. But before we get into her story, we have to take a quick break and hear from one of the sponsors that keeps this show going. So somebody that our listeners ask us to talk about uh, pretty often who we have talked about in a way already is Marsha P. Johnson because we talk about Marsha P. Johnson a lot in our podcast on Sylvia Rivera. They did a lot of their work together. So I wanted to take an opportunity to talk her about again today because she's in your book. Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, I'm going to up, up front real, real quick uh, discuss. So my book is, is uh, uh, called Tough Mothers, and all of the people in it I, are mothers of, of one sort or another. Um, and I, I, uh, the subtitle I give uh, Marsha's chapter is The Godmother of the Trans Civil Rights Movement. Um, 
Marsha's gender identity is is well beyond my pay grade to actually like uh, nail down. I don't think anybody really can. Uh, she, uh, I think a lot of people point her as as a, a trans woman. She uh, identified in several interviews as a gay man, used female pronouns, uh, but it was also the terminology was in its nascent stages. So. Who really knows? Who can say? Uh, so I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, I say I, I think that it's fair to call her the godmother of the uh, of the trans civil rights movement because uh, I mean Sylvia Rivera. I think you you could uh, agree was like really putting in a lot of the the like uh, feet on the ground work and like a lot of the uh, like building all those. Uh, Marsha was almost like the den mother, like was was helping out, um, you know, just looking after people. Wasn't quite as politically active. They, they, like uh, Sylvia actually offered her, I think, a president or vice president role, and, and she kind of declined early on. Um, but she was there for all of it. Um, so from the beginning, um, Marsha P. Johnson uh, was uh, this woman who lived in um, – New York during the, the 1900s um, was there for the Stonewall riots. I think this is where most people uh, sort of know her from. Uh, she is credited with uh, throwing the the shot glass heard around the world. Uh, this is actually, I believe, apocryphal. Uh, yeah, there we, the the we don't actually know. Yeah, who flew? Who threw the first any particular thing? But a lot of different people get credited for it. Yeah, at different times. Yeah, so uh, people point to it. I I'm, I don't think that's the case. There there are a couple eyewitness accounts of her uh, like climbing up a lamp post and like tossing a, a purse or something on a, a cop car or whatever. She was there and she was uh, she was active. Um, but yeah, like uh, who started what is still like a matter of debate that will probably never quite be untangled. Um, so yeah. Uh, she, uh, like so many people in, uh, in Star, the, the street transvestite, uh, action revolutionaries, this is a group that, uh, Sylvia started, uh, she was, uh, a sex worker who, uh, lived in New York, um, and she, uh, was just this incredibly cheerful presence. She, many people refer to her as, as St. Martha, uh, Marsha. She would, uh, uh, show up and give people cookies. If she had any money, she'd give it to other people. Uh, she just, uh, was this incredibly cheery, uh, pleasant presence for, for most people. She uh, uh, had this incredible sense of style where she could just make, like, headdresses out of Christmas lights and whatever. There's so many great pictures of her online. She was uh, uh, well-beloved for being in this band uh, where she uh, sang with a lot of energy but incredibly off-key. Um, she was just uh, she was just this real character that uh, looked after everybody around there, um, and uh, she'd had a, a, a real rough life. Uh, she'd uh, struggled with mental illness uh, for a lot of it. Uh, had been hospitalized. Had been uh, abused. I mean, uh, you name it. She had gone through a rough. She had uh, gotten uh, shot at one point. Um, just. Really, really tough stuff. Uh, but she and uh, Sylvia sort of banded together. Uh, so whereas Sylvia was uh, really looking at uh, things from a more political perspective, Marsha was uh, kind of looking after all of the, the other folk on the streets as like almost her wards as, as, as her kids, like, uh, but wouldn't like be the first president. She said, actually, I, I tend to go off in uh, other directions. 
but yeah, she uh, she was there at the the uh, uh, 1978 uh, gay pride parade. Uh, like uh, tried keeping him out, but then uh, in in, the, in 1980, they she and uh, Sylvia were marching at the front of it, and. Uh, yeah, she she just sort of was a, a presence throughout this. She had an unfortunate end to her life uh, that it still remains uh, unresolved. I think there's a lot of evidence to the effect that she was basically murdered by uh, street violence, um, like a possible uh, act of uh, homophobia, transphobia, but um, uncertain. It's it's still kind of uh, up in the air. I think uh, the police basically uh, let it lapse for a long time and then are looking to reopen it again uh, at last check. But I'm, I'm actually not up to date on, on what is going on exactly at this moment with that. Yeah, the last I heard, it was an officially, it was an unsolved crime, but widely criticized of never having been investigated as it should have been in the first place. Yeah, they they had said it as a suicide, but it almost certainly wasn't. Um, so, yeah, there's been since then a number of uh, documentaries and stuff on her. There was one actually that came out on Netflix that was kind of roundly criticized by rather a lot of people that uh, the controversy is 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 significantly complicated enough that I can't really summarize it particularly well. But I remember being like, oh, I I need to do more research before I, I watch that. Um, but yeah, there's there's been a number of people who have basically been trying to canonize her in various ways, and it's still a matter of some debate. Um, but she was a real cheery, wonderful human being, and we're all poorer for her absence. Yeah, I think every picture I've ever seen of her, she has this giant smile on her face. And so that's how she's portrayed in your book. She like she she has this joyful expression and then behind her in the picture is also Sylvia Rivera in a kind of more defiant militant kind of expression. Yeah, has, has her fist up. Yeah. Uh that that whole uh picture as as with so many of the things in my book, I I do a lot of research and try and put in a whole lot of of different um details about their lives. So uh, behind Sylvia in that picture is uh, uh, strand, uh, the star uh, banner, and that's actually traced from a historical uh, star banner that they had. Uh, Marsha's outfit is legit one of the outfits that she wore uh, in one of the uh, parades. And the place that they're at is a park in New York uh, that has uh, a commemoration of, of the Stonewall riots uh, there, uh, some statues that are also in the background. And Marsha is sort of handing out cookies. There's like a beatific light behind her as a reference to her being sort of the St. Marcia uh, thing. So, yeah, I try to put a lot of uh, little details in there. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I love this next one because your (laughs) opener on it is, this is the true story of two vicious hellions who each ran their own crime syndicate. I mean, if that doesn't like draw you in instantly, uh, we, uh, uh, so yeah, I want to talk about the women of the Sydney underworld. Yeah, Kate, Kate and Tilly. <laughs> Kate Lee and Tilly Devine. So they're basically like Sydney's answer to Al Capone. They were these two women who ran their own crime syndicates who hated each other. <laughs> um, and so I, I sort of view this as, as a lot of black humor. Um, I will say up front that that what they did was no joke. Like the fights that the the criminals at that point in in the world were, were getting into because there were no guns really in Sydney. They would fight with straight razors. Uh, they call they called the area that they uh, lived in uh, Razorhurst. Uh, yeah, so no joke. There was a lot of really gnarly stuff going on, but. 
These two are also just these incredibly colorful characters who are so <laughs> funny. So, uh, real quick, like, Tilly, uh, they, they both had to come from kind of abusive uh, backgrounds. Uh, Tilly was uh, from London. She had uh, entered sex work when uh, she was fairly young, uh, like uh, in her teens. Uh, all that I could say see is that she actually did it of her own volition, but this was her saying that, so it's everything's a little, like, who knows? Um, had married a GI who said that, uh, who's from Australia, was like, hey, I have a kangaroo ranch. Like, my family has a kangaroo ranch. Come and move to Australia. Turns out that they did not have a kangaroo ranch. Uh, it was big Jim Devine. And so she moved over and just uh, started uh, running a bunch of brothels. She took a uh, liberal advantage of uh, the laws on the books that basically said that no man could run a brothel. It was like, I am no man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she she was – and she was just incredibly violent and super mean. And all of the, the police kind of could not stand Tilly. Kate, on the other hand, had been doing this for a bit longer, and she was more of a, a, a rum runner. She, like, a sly grog, they called it. She would basically, like, got all, around all the prohibition laws uh, by having speakeasies and whatnot and, and would deal in booze. Um, and she was also, the, like, she spent some time as a, as a, a prostitute, but mostly was, at this point was just this funny, larger-than-life character who... Uh, would wander around. She she did in, engage in occasional violence, but mostly she was just known for like going up and and telling jokes. She would go into uh, courts as just a matter as like a hobby and give false testimony to try and get people. <laughs> uh, she was like, "Oh, I was there. He didn't do any of that. The cops are no good." She's like, "I don't know you. Who are you?" She would like sit in the uh, the stands during the uh, trials and just peel vegetables and heckle. People and she's just—I I love her. I would have—I I would give a lot to have a time machine to just like sit there and listen to her heckle people while prepping the evening dinner. Apparently. While prepping the evening dinner, <laughs> uh, one of the uh, uh, great anecdotes uh, it survives from one of the uh, the police women who uh, went after them, a, a woman named Maggie Baker, uh, was that she was just. It was like her first week on the job. She was just walking uh, the the area that they both uh, sort of frequented, Razorhurst, uh, just out on patrol. And Tilly, who the, the meaner one of the two, like comes up and is just like, I'm not going to let you pass, like just gets in her face in the street. And then a random trolley goes by and Kate Lee just sort of jumps off it and starts hitting Tilly and like holds her down and is hitting her and just says, oh, go on, you know, policewoman, you do what you need to. I got her. And like an entire crowd has formed. This is like the policewoman's first week on the job. That was the tenor of stuff that they got into. They were just constantly like, I appear from nowhere. I jump off a trolley and I sock you across the face. But they were they were just part of this incredible array of colorful characters in in 1920s Sydney. Uh, there were like these two guys who would always fight over like this one woman. Uh, like, there's a a guy who's a a gay black man with platinum blonde hair who absolutely no book that I read identified him by his actual name. They only identified him by his epithet that everybody called him which is a word that I cannot say on this podcast. All right. That, that I cannot, as, as a white person, I cannot say at all. Right. Um, I went and did some digging. It wasn't that difficult to find this guy's actual name. His name is Alfred Barker. No books. <laughs> we'll see what the guy's actual name was. It's in the newspapers, guys. Just look it up. It's not that hard. 
So they continue going like uh, nuts at each other, like uh, Kate and Tilly for a while. And then in like uh, 1929 or so, uh, the cops kind of start cracking down. They've got uh, this uh, tremendous kind of overreach of policy where they're able to uh, get in and and arrest anybody who's suspected of being of bad character. Uh, Like few people are worse characters than them. So they start getting arrested. Uh, Tilly spends some time in London and then comes back. And most everybody basically gets arrested. And it's just Kate and Tilly pretty much left of the old vanguard after a while uh, because few people uh, like the courts can't really – Except that, oh, a woman is doing this. No, no. They're, 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 they're fine, upstanding young ladies. Um, so they then sort of switch gears and they're like, well, wait. If this whole thing is about, you know, the the premise of, of the, the law is that you have to be a person of bad character to get arrested, we'll just wage a PR campaign against each other. And so they started, like, going after each other in the press and just talking crap about each other. Uh, And they have this whole, like, ongoing feud, which is amazing, that spans many, many newspaper articles about Tilly's dogs and how Kate claims that she lent her the dogs. And Tilly's like, that woman had nothing to do with my dogs. And my dogs are great. And how dare she claim credit for my dogs, which are perfect and wonderful. It's really funny. This is like funny. real housewives levels of pettiness. It's so petty. It is peak petty. But Kate ends up – Kate, who's sort of naturally more ebullient, uh, ends up winning the PR war just because she's like handing out Christmas presents and doing photo ops with Santa. Meanwhile, Tilly is doing like fundraisers for guys who've been c- convicted of murder. Whoops. <laughs> uh, which doesn't really play as well in the press. Optics, Tilly. Optics. Yeah, she's she's not real good at that. And in the end, like they 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 go for a while of this, but uh, in the end, the, the tax man kind of gets them, and life kind of catches up with them. Tilly's uh, image is is uh, further complicated. She had a really abusive marriage. The the the, the kangaroo farmer was a alcoholic, and like really kind of dragged her name through the mud, and her divorce. Uh, it was just real, real awful and uh, very public. And uh, Kate was actually, like, surprisingly supportive of her uh, when everybody else was sort of taking it as a sign of weakness. And um, anyways, the tax people came after him. They both kind of lost their fortunes and got a bit older. A new vanguard of criminals started running the place, and they were kind of old business. And so late in life, they actually have this amazing photo op that Kate put together where the two of them, like, sort of pose with, like, Kate getting totally up in Tilly's space. Tilly's just sort of, like, hunched up and smoking and looking really angry. And, like, whereas Kate is just like, oh, we're best friends and hugging her. It's it's so funny to look at. And the two died kind of uh, later in life. They were, like, 60s and 70s. And uh, they're just this this fascinating chapter of uh, Sydney history. Uh, They weren't good people, but, man, they were colorful. They weren't good, but they're great to hear about. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a TV series that covered them called Underbelly Razor, um, which is – I've not seen. I have heard that it's a really trashy series. It has been described to me as terabad. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so you you talk about this a little in the intro to your book, but for listeners who haven't read your book, why did you decide to focus on mothers this time? 
So the origin of this, because I've been doing this for about four years, and I, I used to work at DreamWorks, and there's a simple origin story that I give of like, you know, the, the industry wasn't doing as well by female characters as I thought it should be, and I struck out on my own to do what the animation studios wouldn't. Rah. That's the easy thing, and that is true. But the larger story is that I had a really awesome mom, and... I don't know. Mom grew up in the the 50s in Kentucky and didn't really have a whole lot of connection to awesome women of history. She felt like something was wrong with her because she was smart and capable and like her her mom would always tell her, "Ah, men don't want a, a smart wife. Like you should really tone it down. And I I can't go back in time and give this book to her. Um I know that she struggled until like her 30s to really find other people like her and that she was constantly worried that that there was something anomalous or or incorrect about her. And she's the most phenomenal human being in my life. Um, And that just breaks my heart. Uh, So I can't go back in time and give this to her, but I can give this to other people who don't have that connection to all the women throughout history, which is, it's it's dumb. It's our, it's our communal birthright. This is something that everybody should grow up with. You should know that there's all these amazing women throughout history who, it's, it's not that, you know, girls can do anything. It's they already have. Um, like, here's the proof. But uh, these stories tend to get whittled down. Um, and so... Uh, it's part of why I did this and then why why the second volume specifically about moms is that above and beyond just sort of the the stereotypes of of what girls and women can be, I I think that the the idea of what mothers can and should be uh, is really restrictive and that the phrase bad mother is this incredibly pernicious thing that kind of haunts people. And uh, I just wanted to show there's a great variety of mothers who've done amazing things and that to view motherhood as this monolithic like here's what it is to be a good mother is is really reductive and I wanted to celebrate moms in a way that hadn't really been done that's that's uh, for many people I think kind of uncomfortable like certainly Caitlyn and Tilly Devine were not stand up paragons of society but I love them anyways, and they were both moms. They were, they, they'd had kids the entire time they were doing all of the things that I just told you. I hate it when people underestimate women. I hate it when people underestimate moms. Um, so this was sort of for that. I love that there's a, a juxtaposition to be had there, like when you're talking about people like Kate and Tilly, who were probably rough in the classic rough, tough, and dangerous to know. Yeah. But at the same time, that doesn't exclude the possibility that they could also be nurturing and caring. And, you know, I think that's kind of like the, to me, that's what's important about these stories is that nothing is simple in life. And and we tend to, like you said, be reductive and like kind of want to pare people down to the basics, but you can't erase all of it. And sometimes it is contradictory behavior but it's important to acknowledge that that's part of being a complex human. That's what I love about the people that I cover. I mean, I don't, I don't cover people who are simple. I try not to. Uh, like, I, I want to cover all of their messy, weird stuff. That's the stuff that I love best about them because I can't identify with people who are Pollyannas. There's a reason it's called rejected princesses. None of them are going to make the cut for Disney. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> 
Many, many thanks to Jason Porath for swinging by the studio. That is always such a treat. And Tough Mothers, Amazing Stories of History's Mightiest Matriarchs is available wherever books are sold. It is an absolute delight. Yeah, it is super-duper fun. Uh, Since that episode runs a little long because we're yappy, I have the shortest of emails to share today. It is from our listener, Carrie. She writes, Hi, longtime listener. Thank you so much for all the educating and interesting podcasts. I just bought my ticket for your Portland show this fall. Yay! Yay, we'll see you there, Carrie. Uh, I thought you would enjoy to know that my one-year-old loves Holly's laugh, and every time Holly laughs, Winifred laughs too. Of course, I can't then help but laugh as well. Uh, Thanks to keep up the good work. That just makes me happy, so I wanted to read it. Everybody laugh more. Yeah, I saw that email this morning, and it made me very happy. And it's got the (laughs) cutest picture of a laughing baby. Uh, Yeah, everybody laugh more. It's good for you. I'm sure some people don't like my laugh. That's fine. But I'm glad that some people do. Not everything is for everybody. But if you want to write to us, uh, you could do so as well at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. And if you go to MissedInHistory.com, there we are uh, with every episode of the show that has ever existed, as well as show notes for any episodes that Tracy and I have worked on. Please join us at MissedInHistory.com and uh, chat with us. It'll be fun. And uh, you can subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 